This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Sickle cell disease is the most common inherited blood disorder in the United States. People with the condition have sickle-shaped red blood cells, and these misshaped cells can block the flow of blood and oxygen to organs throughout the body. These blockages can cause severe pain, organ damage, and strokes. While the disease is well understood, treatment options today are limited, and obtaining proper care can be complicated by healthcare workers' lack of understanding of the disease, racism, and a misconception that the condition only affects African Americans. We spoke to Marcus Valentine, co-founder of Six Cells, and Doris Polanco, a member of the Sickle Cell Thalassemia Patients Network, about sickle cell disease, their experiences with the condition, and how ignorance about the disease affected their care. Marcus, Doris, thanks for joining us. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about sickle cell disease, your experiences as people who live with the condition, and how a lack of understanding of the disease within the healthcare field shapes that experience. Perhaps, Marcus, you can explain what sickle cell disease is. Sickle cell disease is a genetic blood disorder that involves uh, our bodies produce misshapen blood cells that kind of stick together, cut circulation, and um, can cause lots of pain and damage throughout the body. Uh, it's a genetic condition uh, that is uh, passed down from your parents uh, with no cure as of now. And when were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed at six months old. And what led to that diagnosis? How do, how do doctors recognize that this condition may exist? It was actually uh, my mom who recognized um, the way I was crying as a baby. It wasn't like normal, the normal things that you do to uh, when you have an, an infant uh, were not working. And uh, so, you know, they brought me in and they had me tested and... It came back, um, you know, I was positive with sickle cell, hemoglobin SS. Doris, how about you? When, when were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed, actually, when I was about three months old. And um, actually, when my mom was pregnant with, with me, she, they told her that, they told her that I was coming with uh, Down syndrome. They didn't know what was going on with, her, with me in the womb. 
And um, to the point where they suggested to her that that she should have a um, an abortion because they just thought that I was going to come with all sorts of different genetic diseases. Um, so she, they tried scaring her into it, but she, you know, held on to her faith. And when I was born, that's when they actually started running tests. And about three months old is when they, um, they I tested positive for sickle cell hemoglobin SC. Are there any and treatments available today? There are a few treatments available today. Um, one of them is in Zari. One of them is uh, hydroxyurea, which uh, increases your F hemoglobin in your blood. And um, it basically helps for your blood not to get, like, to maintain more normal-shaped red cells instead of the sickle-shaped cells that tend to clog and you know, stick together in different parts of your body and cause excruciating pain. Are, are there treatments available today? Yes, there are a few treatments available today. One of the oldest treatments that have been out for more than 15 years is hydroxyurea. It's a, a pill that you take, and it helps to increase your F hemoglobin in your blood. Um and what it'll help do is just keep you your blood from um, sickling as much as you know it naturally does. And um, I've tried it. It me personally, it hasn't worked for me, but I know many people in the sickle cell community that it has done amazing results for them. It's kept them out of the hospital for five, ten years at a time. So I mean, it's it's. You just have to find something that works for you and your body. So what what may work for, let's say, me might not necessarily work for Marcus. Um, another treatment that there is is the Inzaric, which I believe um, Marcus has been on. Maybe you can explain a little bit more about that one. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I, too, take hydroxyurea, and uh, it uh, has helped me um, when I was younger. Um but uh, I started Ndari recently, which is, it was new to market, and uh, what it is is it's L-glutamine, and it helps with uh, promoting, like, nitric oxide, which helps relax and allow for the, the blood flow to get through a little bit easier um, because civil cells, even though they're misshapen, they do still carry some oxygen, not a lot, and, uh, you know, it's useful to have, you know, the, the blood going even with the sickle cells. So um, I've been on Indari now for, I want to say maybe almost a year, and, uh, you know, it, it has really been beneficial to me. My blood counts stay up pretty good. Um, I was able to, you know, stop getting transfusions because um, I have high iron from too many transfusions, and um, it's amazing to have, you know, the combo of Indari and being able to take it is extremely easy. I mix it with applesauce, and I'm able to... Uh, I take it twice a day, and it has really been very beneficial to me. 
Well, what's it like to live with sickle cell disease? What are what are the daily challenges? Is this a, a disease that flares and you go through periods of intense disruption to your life, or is it rather predictable and, and is there a, a, a lot of variety in the way it affects different people? For living with sickle cell, some of the challenges that I run into are, um, you know, trying to get my day started sometimes. Um, if if it's uh, like bad weather, if it's too hot, too cold, um, or raining a lot, I feel really bad and really sick um, with no energy. Uh, and nine times out of ten, sometimes that persists over into the next day. Uh, so trying to find a balance in having, you know, getting getting up and moving and keeping up with, uh, you know, the day-to-day activities can sometimes become hard, even um, especially if uh, you begin to go into a sickle cell crisis, uh, because not every crisis you don't have to actually go to the hospital unless you feel you do. And uh, sometimes you can, you know, with, hydration and speaking with your doctor can manage a crisis at home. So uh, having to live and deal with all of that can kind of, it's almost like a full-time job, but uh, it's oh, what's yeah. necessary and needed. And um, For someone who doesn't have sickle cell disease, what is a sickle cell crisis? Um, would you like to uh, take that one, Doris? Yes, sure. So a sickle cell crisis, it's basically a pain crisis. Think of your body just going into the most excruciating pain that you've ever felt in your life times a thousand. So let's say um, this morning I woke, woke up and, you know, I have to get I'm a mom of two young girls, and I have to get up and get them ready for school, and my legs, woke up today, decided that, nope, not today. You're not going to be able to walk as much as you did yesterday. And the pain literally feels right now as if my bone, you know, when you're trying to um, twist a towel to, you know, drain the water from a towel, like a wet towel, like if someone's twisting my bone and trying to just, like, just keep twisting and twisting my bone, not my leg, my bone, and then at the same time, it feels like someone has a jackhammer and they're just like going at it on my hole from my knees all the way down to my toes. So it's, it's a lot of excruciating pain. So when we say crisis, that's what we mean. Maybe not as intense as I just described, but we tend to, we tend to, um, evaluate it from one to ten. Ten being that you need to go to the hospital ASAP. Um, but the pain can be so excruciating that sometimes I can't talk. Sometimes I'm just crying in bed. You know, if I wake up, my daily living with sickle cell for me, it's basically waking up, assessing my body, and telling myself, okay, today, what's hurting today? Because 9 out of 10 days, I'm in pain. It might not be a pain that prevents me from, you know, picking up my daughter from school, but it's pain nonetheless. And 
you know, when I wake up and I assess my body and let's say like today it's my legs, I have plans maybe to go food shopping. Well, that's out the window. Can't do that anymore, you know, because my pain right now is about an eight. So it's pretty intense right now. And yes, I'm talking and I probably don't even sound like I'm in pain, but I think that's just become like second nature of just suppressing it and just being dealing with this for 32 years. Um, you know, you learn to just, that only your your close loved ones know when you're in pain. Because just by looking at you, they say, oh, I know you're in pain. You know, and a lot of people, that's why sometimes even when we go to the emergency room, people, doctors, nurses, they, you know, healthcare professionals look at, look at us and say, well, you don't look like you're in pain. And I'm just like, uh, I'm sorry that I'm not screaming and yelling how you perceive someone with pain should be but you know this is a long time struggle that I'm not gonna sit here and just start screaming and pulling my hair out because that's just gonna make it worse I'm not a little kid anymore you know race plays an interesting role in sickle cell disease and I believe both of you have experienced this in different ways since this is a podcast and people can't see you can each of you tell us your ethnicity well, I'm from Dominican Republic. Uh, I was born here in, in New York, but my whole family's from Dominican Republic. And um, I, growing up, I have so many experiences of actually walking into the emergency room and the doctors, well, the nurse is the first person I see, um, have told me, well, it's impossible for you to have sickle cell because you're not black. And I'm just like, what? Like, what are you talking? <laughs> like, I understand that that's the perception that's out there, but no, you can't just look at me and say, oh, it's impossible for you to have something because you're not a certain color. You know, and then from there on on, they just treat you with doubt. Almost as if you you're, you want to have sickles and you're trying to, you know, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. How about you, Marcus? Uh, well, I am African-American, but I also have Panamanian in my background as well as Mediterranean uh, Italian. Um, and wow. so for me growing up, it was, it was a little different. I had, um, I, my mom's a nurse. She's been a nurse for quite some time. And I do remember as a, as a small kid, she would have me reading like books on what you know, my condition is, what medications I needed to take, why I take them. And I used to hate it. I used to hate it so much. But now um, I like it because it really had taught me early on to be able to, you know, speak and convey what's going on to the doctors and the nurses um, and being able to relay certain information to the medical professionals allows for you to, you know, shorten your hospital stay. And uh, I can say I've had maybe a few times where I was not believed um, when I was sick. And uh, I had, I was fortunate enough, though, to have my family around to be able to um, talk about it and to um, help me get through um, what was going on, but... Uh, 
yeah, I was uh, pretty fortunate when it comes to uh, knowing what I had. It was just, you know, being so young, having the condition, and having to know so much stuff was kind of a challenge. Because, you know, you're a kid and you don't want to really be, like, in the situation that you're in, so... Well, Marcus, do you feel health workers' attitudes about race or racial stereotypes or outright racism has affected your ability to obtain proper care at any time? Um, I have had um, a few times when I was younger, there were some, like, I was, uh, a stereotype came into play when I was sick because, they had said, you know, I was making it up, and when in actuality I was suffering, and the doctor was giving the wrong information to my dad, and my dad was trying to, you know, do what the doctor had said, and then, you know, my mom, again, because she was a medical, because she was a medical professional, was able to turn around and change the whole situation. And, um, that, so that was like one of my very first experiences. I had a very bad bowel obstruction and the doctor just wanted to continue pumping me full of Tylenol codeine. And that wasn't the case. My, my, like, I guess my mom had said my tummy was like really big. And if you have to take any type of pain medication like that, it kind of messes with your, your digestive system. So um, there were visual cues, but I wasn't being told or paid attention to um, and was kind of just written off like, you know, you're just, you know, we're, we know what we're doing. And so, you know, we know best. And in actuality, they didn't. And then my older adult years, I have been fortunate enough to kind of avoid some of the um, stereotypes and uh, racism because of I coordinate very well with my uh, hematologist. And so before I either go to an ER, if I'm in a crisis state, I usually will already have seen my doctor and either have, like, IV fluids at home or things of the sort. But on my uh, 30th birthday, I was sepsis, wound up in an ER, and um, they asked my mom if I had mental problems because I could not communicate because I was in so much pain. All I could do is really kind of wail and cry and when all the blood tests came back, it showed that I was, like, extremely anemic. My blood counts were low. I was sepsis. And I wound up in the ICU. And the, the, that was when I presented to the ER. And so that was, like, another instance where I felt, um, you know, impacted by it because, you know, I don't want to be there. And being pumped full of meds, I want you know I want to be at home for my thirtieth birthday, not in a hospital. And so to have somebody 
say something like that to you when you're in a dire state, it's very, very, I don't want it, you take it personal, but it also kind of hurts in some ways because you, you don't want to be there. You don't want to be sick. And so you go seeking help and then you get things of that nature from the people who are supposed to help you. And, um, it, it's kind of tough. And uh, I don't know have, if you've had to deal with anything like that, Doris. Well, have either of you ever me? been accused of drug-seeking behavior because you showed up at yes, an ER? Yes, I was just going to say that. Actually, many times when I've been in the emergency room and um, they've, <laughs> like, nurses, my own nurse would walk away and talk to another nurse and say, oh, she's just here for the pain medication. And... It's almost like they want you to hear what they're saying because literally it was four or five feet away from me with a curtain that's not even, like a thin curtain that doesn't cover anything. And she'll come back and say, well, um, the, the doctor hasn't put the order yet. When sometimes that wasn't the case. And I just felt like they would just look at you. And if you didn't look the way they wanted you to look when you're, like their perception of someone in pain and sick, if it didn't match theirs, they would just look at you and say, oh, you're just here for the pain medication. When it's not the case, yes, I do need pain medication because unless you guys have something else in the market that I haven't heard about, that's one. That's the only thing that can um, lower my pain, you know, in that situation. But, Yes, many times I've been told that I'm a drug seeker, even by doctors. They've they've asked me, oh, what do you usually get? And that's usually what they ask you when they're referring to what you get as in um, opioids, like morphine, dilaudid, you know, and I would say, well, I usually get 8 milligrams. Oh, wait, uh, no, I don't feel comfortable giving you that. And I'm just like, okay, but this, well, I don't understand why not. Why don't you feel comfortable? Oh, that's way too much. And I'm just like, okay, but I've been getting that same dose for the past 15-plus years in this same hospital where you can just go to your computer and put in my MRI number, and you can literally see my whole history of when I started this dose, how long I've been on it. You know, so again, it's almost like they're, they just mind play with you. Like, you know, it just becomes... I just feel hurt and just feel frustrated at the, I, it's just a whole mix of emotions. And then add, it, add to it that I'm not black, which they'll look at you even more like, wait, do you really have sickle cell because you're not black? So it's just a mix of a bunch of misconceptions and just ignorance and, you know, yeah, that's pretty much I deal with that on Marcus, I, if if I remember, you once checked yourself out of a hospital against doctor's orders. What happened then? Yes, I um, I had gone. I was admitted to the normal hospital I go to, and uh, my pain was under control. Pain management was fine, um, and I was dealing with at the time epilepsy. Like my epilepsy went out of control and we couldn't figure it out so my doctor had sent me to um, a specialist at another hospital but 
before he sent me, I was admitted at my base hospital for a sickle cell crisis. So I had adequate pain management. I was able to keep a schedule because when you have, um, you know, part of sickle cell, part of healing, part of breaking a sickle cell crisis is also getting the pain to stop. There's a wonderful article in uh, John Hopkins Magazine from a year ago, years ago, called Sweet Relief, and they talk all about it. But I was sent to this other hospital for my epilepsy to try to figure out what was going on. When I got there, I was uh, denied a PCA. Um, if you had cancer, leukemia, any other, if you had sickle cell, you got no PCA. And forgive me, what, what is you PCA? Had, if you were post-surgery, um, cancer, leukemia, as I said, you could have a PCA. The PCA is a pump that it, you can push a button, and it administers pain meditation to you, and then it has like a lockout period. So the nurse, you're not constantly calling the nurse all the time. And so um, they denied that. And after it got to the point where they didn't want to come in and give me the medication because my blood work came back looking fine, um, like they checked my hemoglobin and it was coming up. Um, and so I wound up, after we got the seizure stuff all taken care of, I wound up discharging myself and going home and then being readmitted to my base hospital for the pain crisis because it again if you don't it's been proven that um part of sickle cell recovery is breaking the pain and once the pain breaks then the body will start to heal and you know go about its normal processes uh, but nothing can prepare you for being called a drug addict, especially when you don't want to be in a hospital. And I've had it happen only, to my knowledge, twice in my later years. And the first time, I was very shocked at the way um, the nurse treated me because it was, it, it was out of the blue. And I thought I, you know, had communicated everything okay. And um, it was just the way that they had it was I had oral pain medication also written, which if you have to take pain meds, oral medication works a little bit longer than an IV medication. The IV gets to the pain faster, and it's almost like an instantaneous uh, pain relief, uh, but it clears out really fast. It stop, it stops working. Um, and so, you know, I had avoided being called drug addict and all that stuff for years and years and years, but there's, it, it's nothing can prepare you for when you have to deal with that because you're in pain, you're sick, you don't want to be there. If you could take your oral pain medication and do fine, you'd, you'd be at home. So, um, yeah, it's happened those, those three times. 
worst was having to discharge myself because I wasn't being listened to. Not only is pain a hallmark of the disease, but fatigue is too. Outside of the healthcare arena, I'm, I'm wondering how this plays out in the way people treat you by not recognizing or understanding the consequences of the condition you have. Have, have either of you experienced problems with that? Oh, of course. Um, me with growing up, you know, and when I was a teenager and just, you know, when you start going out with your friends and start being invited to events and parties and, you know, whatnot, a lot of the time um, when they would ask me to go out, I'd say, yeah, of course, yeah, I would get excited, you know, and maybe you, as I'm getting dressed to go to that event or to that um, setting, I would start getting a crisis, a pain crisis. So, again, it became, do I want to go to this event in pain where everyone's going to see it in my face that I'm in pain and then, you know, make it a whole big deal? Or should I just stay home? And the times that I decided to stay home, you know, and call the person who was organizing the event, they would just not understand. They would just say, well, you were fine an hour ago. What's wrong now? And they just would they wouldn't even... They, they wouldn't even try to understand that this disease can hit you like a truck, you know. It's not, I, I really wish, you know, pain was scheduled. That way we can just schedule our pain and say, okay, from 9 to 1 p.m. I'm indisposed because I'm in pain. But no, the pain can hit you at any moment in your life. So they would just get really frustrated and then they would start assuming, well, you know, you were never going to come. You're, you're just trying to, you know, make a big deal. Like, just being accused of lying all the time. And, you know, it's, it's just their lack of understanding for the disease and how this disease really plays out. You know, um, even with my employer, I haven't, had, I haven't had many jobs because of my disease. Um, well, at least any nine-to-five jobs. Um, I remember I once worked at a gym as a receptionist, as a sales rep, and um, sometimes when I was, was in excruciating pain, I would take my medication, not all of it, because then I would just be a zombie, but, you know, I would medicate myself to the point where I could still work. And one time my boss walked in, and he looked at me and said, what are you on? And I asked him, what? What are you talking about? What drug are you on? And I just looked at him like, is he really asking me this right now? And I just looked at myself in the mirror. I looked to the side and looked at the mirror like, kind of like looking at myself up and down like, wait a minute, what is he seeing that I'm not seeing? And he just said that he could look in my eyes and that I looked drunk. And I said, well, I did take some, you know, dilaudid for my pain. But as you can see, I'm still very, you know, I, I can still talk and do what I have to do. Well, I don't want you on the floor under these conditions. And I tried explaining to him, you know, my condition, my disease, and you know, yada, yada, yada. And it was just dismissed, almost as if, yeah, whatever, you're just lying. You were just, you probably just, you know, popped a pill or something for just some recreational use. And it made me feel very, I don't know, it just made me feel bad. Like, I, I can't even describe the feeling. There seems to be a number um, of therapies moving quickly toward the market. There's actually a, a robust pipeline of potential sickle cell drugs. That wasn't always the case. Any thought 
on what's driven the change? I think more research has been done on, on sickle cell and people are realizing that, you know, it's not just a disease of pain, even though that's the biggest, uh, like the, the biggest reason, the, the biggest thing that affects us. But, I mean, for whatever reason it is, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to... Um, I'm just excited for the future and for, even if it doesn't help me personally, but I'm excited for other sickle cell warriors and for them to actually have the possibility of getting pain relief and just living uh, the closest life to normal that they can. And, and how hopeful are you that these drugs will change the landscape for the disease in the near term? Well, I'm very hopeful. I mean, I, I don't have anything left but to be hopeful, you know, for, like I said, whether it's for me or for other sickle cell warriors, you know, I, I'm i more of an optimist. I like to be more positive than negative. But I do see a lot of these medications that are already in their final stage of their trial that have been helping. I'm actually on a clinical trial right now for GBT-440, and um, even though it's a placebo, so I don't know what I've been on for the past year, but in a month I'm going to be switched over, unblinded for the study, and I'm looking forward to, A, knowing what I was on for the past year, and B, I'm excited for them to actually give me the real drug if I wasn't taking it already. Um and I'm just excited. That's pretty much what I can say about it. And, and Marcus, how about in terms of people's attitudes? How, how do you see those changing as well? Um, I think the attitudes are changing. And uh, I think it's because we've got, you know, we've got a lot of attention being paid to us right now. And uh, the community has done such a great job in communicating what, we need and how we've been underserved for so long and now how uh, we have these opportunities and we are pushing for more development because in the past, you know, we've only had a couple of treatments and that was it. That's, that's all we had and it wasn't really mainstream. Um, and now it's picking up, more people are taking interest, more people are doing research. Not only are pharma companies doing research, biotech companies as well are interested in trying to change the disease and the landscape. And so I'm very, very hopeful for the future. And for drug development on that end, I think is amazing because we went from very little to a lot. We've got three FDA-approved drugs. One, which is the Indari, which is, I always say, the first FDA-approved sickle cell drug because it was gone and designed around sickle cell, whereas hydroxyurea was designed for cancer. It's an old cancer drug, and we use it because it creates the fetal hemoglobin, which doesn't sickle. And so um, it it's amazing to see, like, your disease not have anything going for it 
and any time you heard sickle cell, it was either in a negative light or of that nature. And now to have like all of these companies wanting to talk about it and bring the conversation and pull down the walls and separate the stereotypes from the actual facts is amazing because not only do I have it, I have friends who have it and, you know, to have to see them go through their daily struggle and I go through my daily struggle with very few treatment options, um, to have that on the horizon now with that options going up and up and up, it's, it's wonderful. Marcus Valentine, co-founder of Six Cells, and Doris Polanco, member of the Sickle Cell Thalassemia Patients Network. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.